0: you're listening to the catholic psyche podcast the catholic psyche podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment therapy or diagnosis you should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment oh that's fancy Hey, you're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast, uh, coming to you through the power of the internet this time. This is our first non-localized Catholic Psyche. I'm Deacon Basil.
1: Yes, I'm Cherie. We can't see each other to know who to speak next.
2: Yeah. This is Chris. I think I'm next on the list. There's a list of our names, so we'll just, we'll imagine that that's the sequence where we're sitting in,
0: if we were in the room together.
3: (laughs) And I'm Taylor.
0: Perfect. And Taylor, yeah, so today is, although this is going to come out on, on a Wednesday, today is actually, let's see, it's Holy Week for those of you who follow the Gregorian calendar, and it is uh, Lazarus Saturday for those on the Julian calendar. Um, so, yeah, today we thought it would be kind of important in lieu of all of the coronavirus, in lieu of all of the kind of discussions about not going to uh, to liturgy for uh for Pascha or Easter in general, to really kind of talk about what this means and what it means to be um, to be a Christian without access to some of those things that we typically rely on, like uh, like liturgy. And I think Cherie, you proposed this uh, this as kind of the topic. I'm kind of curious your thoughts on on uh, what it means to have a vision of God that has had to change.
1: Well, you know, kind of that idea of right, like some of those things that we're used to experiencing God with is now limited. Or we don't have access to. So, that idea that we have to adjust our, even our own expectations of how we experience God, and we have to adjust even our own behaviors. Or, I, I even think about it in like love languages like, oh. we have to <laughs> redefine or um, get out of our comfort zone to experience God in new and different ways in our life than, than we're used to. And then, yeah.
0: Can you say a little bit about love languages? I'll, I'll be honest with you. Love <laughs> languages is not, um, it's not my forte uh, when it comes to couple's work. Can you speak a little bit about what that means as relates to a love language with God?
1: Yeah. So, um, the five love languages is physical touch, quality, time, acts of service, gifts, and words of affirmation. So those are the five love languages. And, um, Actually, uh, the, the author of The Five lang- Love Languages um, actually wrote a book about love languages with God as well, um, and that's Gary Chapman. And so his idea is we, we do experience God through those love languages as well, like with physical touch, the Eucharist, right? And... And then also quality time or spending time in adoration or spending time in a chapel or or even at home. Right? Or and then, you know, acts of service, which might be, you know, maybe some of the volunteer work or things that we do actively in the community in the church. And and even through another one for like physical touch or even words of affirmation, like prayer or praise and worship, or you know, some of the the chants that we might sing in church as well. So there's all these different ways that we experience love and relationship with God
0: yeah. I'm just I'm kind of surprised that Gary Chapman uh, would talk about like that physical kind of experience. I mean, with the Eucharist, I mean, I, I assume he was. I assumed he was a Protestant. Yeah. He is, right? But you know, yeah, I think,
1: I, I, think yeah. I added that one. Okay, I was about to be like, "That's a that's a <laughs> Bellman, uh,
0: Yeah, that's, <laughs> book, that's, that's a... <laughs> a a patent pending uh, book soon to come. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. You know, I think that entire idea of just in general of couples' work um, and and its ramifications on the spiritual life. I'm reminded of that mm-hmm. great text by uh, Doctor Sue Johnson uh, created for Connection, which mm-hmm. is uh, you know her kind of reading of the of the. Um, of the Christian gospel through the lens of attachment theory and emotionally focused therapy and I think that's just so so cool um, As it relates now, I think you know when we look at all of those five love languages and things a lot of those Have radically shifted for a lot of uh, Catholics and Orthodox in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I know that, you know, March 13th uh, Is when the Archbishop of Denver? I'm not mm-hmm. sure um about about Dallas uh, but the Archbishop of Denver uh, closed all public masses. And then the Eastern churches, um, you know, kind of followed mm-hmm. suit right after that. The Orthodox followed the week after that. And it's, you know, it's it's radically shifted the way in which a lot of people have seen God and mm-hmm. and relate to God, um, as opposed to seeing him in uh, a church with their eyes. They're seeing him on a computer screen in their living room. And I'm curious what yeah. that's been like for you guys, just in general, Kind of experiencing that that real shift
1: well i can say that um you know at least for me it, it's kind of like one of two things it's it's i'm like i feel like just easier access and so i i feel like i get it more often and i'm constantly seeing it on on social media mm. so it's almost just like a nice reminder that something is always going on and something's always taking place within the church. Mm-hmm. And at any point of time, I can participate in that. Um, so on one hand, it's been nice in that way. On the other hand, that community piece that, that we experience or almost like a mindset shift when we walk into a church, mm-hmm. um, it isn't there. And so that part feels, feels missing. Right. of of feeling like we enter into a different world and or a spiritual world in that sense
0: um, yeah, I, I think that's a, yes. a a great point. I mean, one of the things that my i mean i'm I'm still responsible for you know live streaming uh, liturgies and stuff, so you know i'm I'm still there. I, I have to canter, which has really been kind of a surprise because I haven't cantered in you know four years of <laughs> <laughs> um, you know having to canter again, it's been kind of an interesting um experience because, you know, my wife has mentioned that I, that it's, it's not like she gets up and takes the kids and gets the kids ready for church and takes the kids and mm-hmm. drives them to the to the church. It's yeah. a, a, a much more kind of subtle, um, you know, you just go downstairs and start, start live streaming something. And so it's almost like in some ways there's a certain level of access, which I think is a good thing, but at the same time, it's also like, there's not a, um, as consistent of a uh, sort of preparation and, and readiness mm-hmm. for the, for the mm-hmm. liturgy in general.
1: Right. Absolutely. And, you know, something else um, I like to bring up because of what I've noticed with people I've talked with and people I've served, you know, through this time is I'm like, wow, like recognizing the impact and just how important the Eucharist is yeah. because people are really noticing that it's missing. and, if we even look at it from an attachment point of view, from a relationship point of view, sometimes Eucharist is the only safe contact they have in the world. Or, you know, that's their, that's their best relationship. And to not have that, to not have access to that, is really scary for a lot of people.
0: That's a really profound point because I... I um... Well, I, I have been receiving the Eucharist, um, you know, just mm-hmm. as commonly as possible. So I haven't really experienced that in the same way. But it does strike me that without the Eucharist, it radically has shifted the way in which most Catholics, particularly Roman Catholics, I should say, mm-hmm. particularly Roman Catholics, it's how they relate to God. And that's a relatively new um, kind of relationship. I'm, I'm curious, Taylor, you're, you're thinking on that.
3: Well, I think... I really resonated with the idea that being able to physically go to a church is a very powerful part of your spiritual life, and a quote that's written on the walls of the church that I attend is, you are no longer strangers and aliens, and that was something that just brought me home and made me realize this is where I belong and you know watching masses live streamed in my own home alone or um with maybe one other person kind of makes me feel like okay am I back at I am a stranger and alien because I don't have that community that I get to see across the church uh, and all the other pews but at the same time it has also been a beautiful experience because it's kind of like taking ownership over your own spiritual journey and not doing it just for the sake of other people watching which is something that Lent calls us to do you know. Ash Wednesday is when we hear about not letting our right hand know what our left hand is doing. And um, maybe we're being called to really take ownership of our spiritual life. And even if it's in the confines of our own home with nobody watching.
0: That, I think, is one of the really kind of interesting things that has kind of developed is because we have... Particularly the Western Church, and I'm not—that's that, nothing wrong with this for the record—but particularly with the Western Church, it has become extremely Eucharistic, more so than it was in the past. There's nothing wrong with that, but really, you start to see this sort of regular, weekly communion, uh, receiving of the of Communion, starting relatively recently. I, it, most people don't understand that the reason why the Church says you must receive the Eucharist during Easter is because people were going years without receiving the Eucharist. Um, and it's really actually a, a relatively new development that people would be receiving the Eucharist on a regular basis, even a weekly basis. Now Vatican II indic- uh, encouraged that. So it's not like there's something outside of the tradition with that. It's certainly within the tradition, but it is just kind of a, a, a really interesting relatively recent development within the within the mind of the uh, of the church, particularly the Roman Church. And it just strikes me that that's kind of an interesting way because I don't think you know starting in the 1970s there just has not been globally a real pandemic where the Eucharist was not distributed by the clergy on a on a for an extended period of time. So we're kind of starting to see a new way in which uh, this is developed and what that means.
2: I was reading uh, there's a there's a good article um, that Father Thomas Joseph White. Who's a Dominican priest? wrote Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he wrote for um, First Things actually, and it's in it. He responds to he responds to critics who take issue with um, with closing churches and um, with putting a stop. You know, with civil authorities putting a stop to public liturgies. You know, pe- people who take issue with that. Father Thomas Joseph White responds to them, saying, "No, this is good, actually, right? <laughs> because we want to." save the lives of the most vulnerable Um, and he cites uh he gives a lot of precedent he cites examples throughout history including the the span the you know what's called the spanish flu of 1918 and the Mm -hmm. um various plagues of the middle ages and renaissance he talks about charles borromeo um, holding masses outdoors or closing churches and in that article he makes the point that um At a lot of these outdoor masses, no one was receiving communion, but that wasn't like unusual at the time because no one received regularly anyway, right? You'd receive, you know, once or twice a year. And like you said, at certain times during, in certain times and places in Christendom, people went years. Um, So yeah, this is new, right? Insofar as it's the first post-Vatican II worldwide pandemic that has cut off access to regular reception of the Eucharist, which has become... Which has become normative, but in some ways it's been um it for me at least i've actually i've i've you know I wonder if like we take it for granted you know i've I've kind of enjoyed the experience of like um changing my relationship with the mass because I'm not receiving communion and actually. Um, I have to put this really delicately because it's like, if if someone misinterprets this, it's going to be like, oh, Chris the heretic. But, you know, in some (laughs) ways, our personal reception of communion can be made into an idol. I know that sounds provocative and I'm happy to elaborate on that but I suspect no, I think
0: that, that's really yeah. accurate. Uh, go ahead like please do elaborate on that though because I Yeah, yeah, and I want to hear sure I'm on the same boat. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to
2: hear everyone's thoughts too and I'm always welcome to push back but um in the last year or so I you know I'm in, I'm embarrassed to say this on the Catholic psyche but I'll I'll model vulnerability for our listeners. You know, my uh, my understanding of the mass, like, I didn't really understand the mass until very recently, until the last couple of years. Um, and I think we kind of absorbed through osmosis this idea that, like, the source and summit of the mass is when I get to receive communion. That's the source and summit. That's the highest point. That's my contact with Jesus. Um, no, uh, absolutely not. No, the, the Vatican II and the whole tradition of the church has always said that this, the source and summit of the mass is, is, is the sacrifice sacrifice. And the reason why Jesus is present um, in the Eucharist is because he's made present so that the sacrifice can be made present. And that's just been a game changer for me, just knowing that like, well, certainly, you know, my reception of communion is part of that sacrifice, but it's not the only way I participate and contribute to that sacrifice. Is that is that a thing in the East too, Basil? Can you talk a little bit about? Do the Byzantines have a big theology of sacrifice as well, or is that more about? Um,
0: you know, it, ironically, I, I I think one of the major things that shifted the way in which the Church in the West developed was the uh, was the bubonic plague, the Black Death, um, and I don't think the the Church. At large has really dealt with that and and the effects of that in general. Um but what happened, I think subconsciously is that the the church developed a much uh, a, a view of life, which was much more about sacrifice, and we need to move forward through these you know through these times of difficulty. and you start to see this development of this theology of the the um uh, my participation in the sacrifice of and and the and the sufferings of Christ brings about salvation which is you know, true i'm not denying that but i think where that that developed because of the plague and because of you know a massive percentage of europe died off during the uh during a plague uh multiple plagues um it should be said but i think where where what you're really saying is that in the byzantine rite the entire divine liturgy uh starts off with uh the what's called the prothesis liturgy which happens before the people uh, are aware of it and that actually is the commemoration of the cross so you have this 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 bread this, this it's 11 loaf of bread with a stamp on it called the you know with a specific stamp that represents christ it has you know specific uh it it sounds like you're like an ink stamp no it's actually a stamp into the actual bread and then it bakes with the actual design on the top of it. Um, and then there's one that represents the, the um, that represents Christ, one that represents the blessed mother and the priest. And he was, the priest recreates, represents rather not represents, but represents the uh, crucifixion during that prothesis liturgy. So he's cutting the, the uh, he's, uh, chanting the prayers of the gospel of John at the crucifixion while cutting the bread. And he has a lance that he lances it and he pours the, the, the water and wine into the chalice at that point, as it flows, you know, when he's talking about it flowing forth. So that's the principal aspect of the commemoration of the cross. Then, totally
2: sacrificial. That's totally, totally sacrificial.
0: sacrificial. But what's interesting about it is then the liturgy begins as far as the people are concerned. And it immediately jumps into the liturgy of the word and the reading of the epistle and the, and the uh, gospel. And then after that, there is a procession through the church of the, uh, of the bread and wine. And what St. Germanos, which is a ridiculously fun name to say, but what St. Germanos uh, said is that that is the procession of the crucified and dead body of Christ from the cross into the tomb. And then he's entombed on the altar. And so there's a specific chance that the priest and deacon are doing about St. Joseph of Arimathea taking and and entombing Christ. And then it's the resurrection afterwards, which is exactly, you could see the, the kind of the connection between these two, or excuse me, all of these between the East and the West. But what the important point is, it's the sacrifice, but it's also the resurrection that is key about the mass or the divine liturgy. And it's the receiving of the re- resurrected body of Jesus Christ, which is uh, which is what we receive uh, after the consecration. It's the experience of the resurrection. Now, why this is important is because I think we have images of God that we place Him in a box, and this was what you were kind of saying, Chris, is that we put these images of God and put Him in a box, almost like uh, Saint Joseph. Entombed Christ. He put Christ into a box. You know, I think we do this psychologically, but the resurrection shows us that every box we put Christ in, he's going to burst forth from, no matter what it is, including the ways in which we view him in the Eucharist. I'm going to let everybody else talk now since I've been talking ad nauseum. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I like your idea of. Chris, of having to change our relationship with how we experience the mass, which also changes our relationship with God. And, you know, I think about in a psychological term, Maslow's hierarchy of need. And the first need is, um, you know, food, shelter, uh, our physiological needs. And that could be the Eucharist. For some of us, um, that is our food. And um, maybe we're being called to sacrifice just like in the mass by figuring out how to receive that food in a different way right now during this time. And then safety. um, How do we feel safe? Now, how do how can we call on God's safety in a different way? How can the next one is love and b- belonging? How can we experience community when we're not, or when we're being called to sacrifice that community right now? And it probably goes back to your idea on the love languages, Sheree. um Yeah. So I just wanted to throw that out I'm there. I'm
0: curious. I mean. With that hierarchy of needs concept, and and there's a link in the description uh, for a picture of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But basically, it's a. Whoa!
2: Oh man! Sorry, I just got an Amber alert on my. Amber. Oh, not even an Amber, Amber alert. alert. A coronavirus
0: alert. Are you? Are they? Are they coming to get you?
2: They just the said or... you. You have no, uh, because of the widespread presence of deadly coronavirus, we've extended the stay at home order through April 26th.
0: All right, they're just totally this This has been the case for like three days, (laughs) anyways. Besides the point, um, no, I think, (laughs) I think the, the um well okay so you've got maslow's hierarchy of needs which is a pyramid right and it's a pyramid where at the lower you have to start off with the base the basic things like food and shelter and then move up to those higher things and and he says the top is self actualization i wonder if sometimes we have not made the eucharist i'm not trying to like i'm not trying to call you out on this taylor i think we maybe as a church have made the eucharist as the lower things as opposed to the height that we perhaps don't receive as as regularly.
2: All like uh, we've all reached the highest stage of contemplation, so words don't even words aren't even necessary at this point. Um, I, I'll say really quickly uh, one more word about sacrifice. I don't want to hijack the conversation and, and make it on on this topic, but uh, I recently finished reading the Epistle to the Romans, and in there, Saint Paul. Uh, tells us in um, several places, but I believe in chapter twelve to make our bodies a living sacrifice, um, and I and you know Taylor is saying what what are the ways that we can live out that sacrifice? So I you know I would encourage all of us and our listeners to to think about that. Think about oh, hang on one second. There we go. Think about the ways that um, we we live we live sacrificially as Christians and maybe also think a little bit more deeply about what it means to sacrifice because um, so often the connotation with sacrifice is just, Oh, I'm going to, you know, like it's a loss. I'm going to give something good or fun. I'm going to give it up. Um, But sacrifice is such a rich biblical concept and and I think you know that we end up we what do we gain right when we sacrifice what do we gain in communion with god and with uh, each other so
1: yeah and i
3: think when you think about maslow's hierarchy of needs maybe the eucharist could should be seen more as self Actualize at the top of the pyramid as you were talking about the peak of your experience of the mass but right now we're being called to experience our own sacrifice whatever that may be during this time whether it's a job loss or being having to be separate from loved ones or having to worry about um our loved ones at risk you know there's a lot of Sacrifices that we're being called to make right now. And I think it's our,
1: um,
3: our, we're being called to figure out how to unite that to our experience of sacrifice in the mass or uh, relationship with God.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably true. I also think we have to relate differently to God at every level now, um, because I think sometimes maybe we've become what sounds very odd odd to say it. I think this is what Chris you were alluding to earlier is that we've perhaps become a little too res, um, reliant on just the Eucharist. Um, and what the what the Church uh, what Vatican II said is that we receive the body of Christ. Physically in the Eucharist, but we receive Him through the, the preaching and the the preaching of the Word. Uh, we receive Him in the in in the Word at the liturgy of of, of the Word as well. Uh, I'm going to re-say that so I can edit this back. But we receive Christ physically in the Eucharist, but we also f- uh, receive Him in the Word during the preaching of the Scripture as well. And so I think that's a really important point: is that it's a both and and i think sometimes we've become so fixated on just the eucharist that we've lost an appreciation for the ways in which god comes in all of these other ways
1: yeah i and i would agree with you and kind of that going back to that idea that you brought up about like kind of idolatry or you know really holding up the the eucharist to kind of a higher level or what i thought of when i heard that of like the only way I can ever experience God is through the Eucharist. And, and I think a lot of people are, maybe not a lot of people, but I think there are some that are experiencing that. And then that shuts them down and doesn't allow them to be open to experiencing God in new and different ways in, in their home. Um, and because that's the only way that they experience God in a real way. And, yeah, I, I think that, right, like, when we put even God in that box, right, like, I, I think that's even limiting God, and, and to a certain
0: extent. That's a, that's a really interesting point, that, that sometimes we put God just into that, the box of just the Eucharist, as if God can't come in any other way into our hearts. Uh, and that, you know, I, I think, go to a Roman... Uh, conference, for example, Roman Catholic conference, it's the same with an Eastern conference for the record, but, you know, go to a Roman Catholic conference. And, you know, when we all pray together, it's the mass and then Eucharistic adoration as well, right? It's those two together. (laughs) And what happens about the entire rest of the spiritual tradition that has in many ways completely disappeared in the lives of most uh, Catholics, as far as just, you know, things like um, well, the the Ignatian spirituality and the reading of the scriptures through an Ignatian lens or the examined prayer or the entire mm-hmm. concept of, you know, the spirituality of the desert or the entire, you know, development of, of St. Dominic's nine ways of prayer. I mean, a lot of these, have, the, the church has a very developed theology on spirituality that has lasted a very long time. However, I think sometimes we have set that aside because we have, the eucharist which doesn't downplay the importance of the eucharist at all it's just to say maybe sometimes we have to prepare more to receive the eucharist because it is so important and not make it an everyday kind of kind of experience although i think daily mass is a great thing for many people too mm-hmm. when it's not not in a pandemic
2: <laughs> i, I want to Uh, Let me draw one more distinction um, or like make clearer a distinction that I made earlier, which, which is between um, the mass, which is a Eucharistic sacrifice and our Mm -hmm. reception of the Eucharist, our reception of communion. Right. So I, I agree with absolutely with the church, right. That like the Eucharistic sacrifice is the, center of christian life it's the source and summit and and in in the maronite church um you know in in the maronite church in the middle east for so long uh christians were persecuted uh and still are so much so that um there there would often be very little uh by way of like rcia like here in the west we have like rcia like you go through a program in order to mm-hmm. join the church and you learn the basics and you learn your catechism and you learn the bible And then you have like continuing ed and like uh, you know theology on tap and in in the in the middle east in the maronite church it was like you know my pastor the way he put it, it was like for many people their baptism was their death certificate so um the theology that they learned was built in to the liturgy and lived in lived through the liturgy so the eucharistic sacrifice was like everything um but that sacrifice, that Eucharistic celebration, is happening, and we're participating in it, whether or not we go up to receive communion. So that was the distinction I wanted to draw. I don't want to in any way downplay the mass. I mean, I I, I think it's um you know I, I'm so grateful just knowing that masses are still being said privately by priests, and um and it's been really hard for me not having the the mass. I think um Sheree and Taylor were saying earlier about like entering into that physical space. I think um, maybe there's a part of me that even though um, even though I don't live in the in the in a place where Christianity is like aggressively and violently persecuted, I still that resonates with me, that idea of like you get fed through the mass.
0: Like, yeah. I and totally I, get I think, that. You know, that certainly is is part of it. And you know, it to to take any of this to an extreme, I think is a big mistake is to say that, oh, well, the mass doesn't matter. The Eucharist is not important because there can be a pandemic that comes and wipes it out. No, it emphasizes the reason why all of these things are so important and so vital to our our spirituality and our theology. But I also do think that there's an added um, kind of cautious uh, stance that we all need to have, which is we need to prepare for the Eucharist in a deeper and more profound way. And maybe this fast um, can be fast from the Eucharist can be an experience of a deeper relationship with God through other forms as well. So that when we come back from the pandemic, we can experience the Eucharist in a more profound and less, um, perhaps sometimes, uh, taking for granted way.
1: Yeah.
2: What do you all think of, or go ahead, Shri.
1: Um, I was just going to kind of talk about like some ideas on different forms of how we could experience God in our homes. So it's perfect. (laughs) So actually when, so when Mass started going live stream or, you know, we couldn't go in, it kind of brought me back to my good old Steubenville college days Mm. and something I haven't done since then. And that was, so we had essentially households. They weren't, you know, sororities, but they were called, like, households. And every every Saturday, and I don't know about every single one, but most of them would have something called Lord's Day, where you would...
2: Oh, we've. Been, my wife and I have been doing Lord's yeah. Day. Yeah,
1: so where we would gather, and we would, you know, be singing a hymn or a praise song or whatever, you know, devotion was um, that particular household, and then... You know, read the scripture for the coming Sunday, and then reflect on it. Maybe answer some questions. Kind of just have like a biblical discussion on that and what that means. And then um, there would actually be bread and wine. Granted, it's not the Eucharist. Nobody's doing any kind of transubstantiation, but kind of <laughs> that entering in into and passing around the the bread and wine as well. And I've, I've recommended it to clients um, and, and other people during this time to kind of even just participate in that. I see pictures of my friends with their family and their kids and, you know, they're watching mass and they got, you know, candles and flowers and bread and wine and they're kind of doing their own thing. And I think we can still enter in to that experience in an emotional uh, and psychological
0: way. Yeah, I think that's a, a phenomenal way. And I think that for the record just just like you said i think that's a great idea whether uh, in a pandemic or if you are able to go to mass the next day i think it's a phenomenal tradition um you know the one that i and i i've been trying to beat this drum for 15 years now um but the concept of the liturgy of the hours or the divine office um in the in the Nova roman rite it is a phenomenally wonderful text it they're 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 um their update in the post-Vatican II update. It's absolutely spectacular. It's user-friendly. It's not too crazy. It's a little crazy, but not too crazy as far as where you're supposed to turn the page and everything else. And it's the prayer of the church. It's what the clergy of the Roman rite are required to do every single day. And it's considered to be second in importance as far as prayer only to the mass itself. Roman priests are not required to celebrate the mass every day. They're required to pray the divine office. So Vespers, Matins, um, I guess it's called morning prayer, evening prayer, daytime prayer, night prayer. They're required to pray all of that. They're not required to pray the mass. Now, I think most of them do pray the mass every day, but it's a really important participation that we can have in the praying of the Psalms and the praying of the uh, scriptures that would allow us to be able to kind of enter into uh, the experience of prayer, the prayer of the church, even if it's in our, you know, I don't know, chairs at home in our living room.
3: I love those ideas. And I will also add that um, since we're talking about feeling distant from God during this time, because we can't receive him in all of these ways, I will add that when I feel distant from God, it helps to take a walk in nature so that Mm. I'm not forcefully, you know, praying prayers that someone else wrote or, Um, doing things that I'm just trying to force myself into a relationship with God. I think when I'm feeling distant from Him, it helps to take a walk in nature and just sit and be and uh, just trying to soak in the beauty of God's creation in a way that's going to work for me. Um, So I think during springtime, we need to take advantage
0: of that i I think that's phenomenal It's supposed to be seventy degrees today in Denver. I don't know what it is down in Texas, but snow, tomorrow it's supposed snow to tomorrow. Snow. yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow snow. <laughs> which is a great. Cold. I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: I said we're fairly cold today too. Kind of crazy, but yeah,
0: but but I think you're absolutely right. and 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 this past week has been, Gorgeous here in Denver, um, with those good seventy day, seventy degree days, and it's a time to just kind of go out and experience God, just like you're saying in nature. Um, and I think that that real kind of aspect of finding God in the hidden, mm-hmm. I, I I think that's really pretty important. Um, I have a, a a it's turning into a catchphrase of mine that liturgy and laundry both sanctify. And my point between uh, about that is that. Doesn't mean that you can't go to liturgy or shouldn't go to liturgy when you can, but it also just like you have to do litur- uh, have to do laundry in order to uh, to get through it. But both sanctify God can be found in both. Perhaps it's a, a little bit more hidden now, and a little bit he's a little bit more out of the the kind of normal way in which we relate to him. But I don't know that that's the worst thing in the world for us to have to go and find and search for God. It's like an uh, Easter egg hunt God in a little bit more sort of way. <laughs> yeah, like me straight up. Um, and
2: and <laughs> oh, that's
0: really cute. That's so good.
1: I, I like that.
0: <laughs> I, I mean, that might not be a bad Sorry. way to describe it to you, to kids. I I think I'll probably use that with with my daughters. Uh, but the the kind of key thing for me, and one of the things that we mentioned beforehand was the concept of what do we do with the emotions and the psych and the psychological aspects of all of this. Moving forward, and uh, you know, how do we kind of find purpose in all of this? Uh, this difficulty, I, I had a couple of clients describe for me. Actually, almost every client has described it so far to me that it's like trying to. Um, they don't even know what day of the week it is anymore, and, and I've experienced this as well. Is like, is today a Thursday or a Tuesday? I have no idea. Um, how do we find meaning? through all of this without the kind of typical processes that we normally have.
1: Yeah. So for me, what I've kind of noted and has come up for me is actually Proverbs three, five, which is trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on not lean, not on your own understanding. And Mm. because I feel like if we, if we do lean on our own understanding, which given the current situation is, is limited and, even when this situation isn't happening, it's very limited. So, and when we do that, it's just going to create anxiety. And so kind of giving that up of like, you know what, I'm not going to understand anything. Right. Like, or even trying to understand the purpose of something or the purpose of now, I think it's just going to be an extremely limited idea, um, to be honest. And is going to create anxiety for us um, or some sort of need to create meaning. So then we can exert some sort of control, which I don't think we're really able to get much of right now. Yeah. So kind of that idea of, you know, right now, when things are uncertain, our natural human tendency is to make meaning and is to try to find ways to gain control or try to find things that we can do. And, I think that in and of itself is very limited. Like there's not because we just don't even know what tomorrow's going to look like. Like even Chris like your your amber alert or your alert on your phone. Like we don't know how long we're going to have to stay in or if tomorrow we're going to be able to go outside or go into the office or who knows what that's going to look like.
2: Uh, I, um, Basil and I have talked a bit about this on our Mount Tabor chats video, but that uncertainty, I think that's really one of the biggest stressors for, for all of, for just all people, right? Like not knowing, not having control over your future and not knowing what the future will bring is, is painful. Right. Right,
1: Absolutely. And so kind of going even to that of like, why is this happening or why is God allowing this to happen or. You know what yeah just what's the purpose of all of this like any i think any answer we come up with is going to be um short oh yeah
2: oh and i'm i'm still i'm still on my like act acceptance and commitment <laughs> therapy kick like it's <laughs> it's not gone away is it really a and kick so, at
0: this point at, i mean isn't this like no a, it's just a the new frame leveling? it's just yeah, like okay. a yeah it's
2: yeah um yeah, it's like you, Basil, with the like Ignatian, like your like examine prayer is not a kick. It's just part of you. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's the same for me. And act so. Um, in the spirit of acceptance and commitment therapy, um, I I think it's great to make room for that. Like make room for that anxiety.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, we're not like I, d- you know, we don't have to try to beat it away. Like we l- now is the time to like get acquainted with our own anxiety, our own frustration. Like make room for that, make space for that. Um, see it for what it is. Um, get to know it a little bit yeah it, maybe there's some wisdom about us in that anxiety Yeah,
1: absolutely of of kind of that idea of like when people come and they're like i'm so anxious and i don't what can i do to not be anxious right now and i'm and my answer is pretty much like you're going to be anxious like let's learn how to kind of just yeah accept that and acknowledge that you're like right now, your nervous system, everything's going to be online. Anxiety is going to be there. That unknown is going to be there. And kind of accepting that. Yeah, kind of just like inviting it along. Like it's just going to be there. <laughs> like,
2: Yeah, I, I love that. Um, okay, so question for everybody. I, I was talking with a friend yesterday on the phone about the ways that the quarantine has helped has been helpful in our lives, like the silver linings of the pandemic. And I've been hearing this almost as often as I've been hearing people's frustrations and anxieties. So I'm, I I want to ask all of you, like in what ways have you grown or in what ways have you seen people grow through the pandemic and the quarantine?
3: There's definitely a lot more spending time with family, which is a beautiful thing. You know, we're forced to, stay at home and be with parents are with their kids. And, um, I think that's a beautiful thing. Although it, it could be very stressful for the parents. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think I, some of my parents are like, can daycare open again, please. Pretty please. please yeah. yeah. I, I would say personally, you know, what's been really helpful for me is just, like growing connection in my marriage Um, just simply for the fact that prior, prior to, to the virus, like we had just gotten married and then moved and then we were still like kind of traveling all the time. So this is like the longest both of us have been in the same place. Um, And, and he's been working from home. So like us kind of working on connection and, just kind of intimacy and and time with each other has just been wonderful to take advantage of.
0: Awesome. I think I've realized just how much you can do from home um, in general about work, um, just work or, or just life in general. Um, and at least for me, um, I have gone a long while. I'm sure I'm not the only one but maybe the only one in this group, but I I'm not the only one that has gone a long while with a massive amount of projects or whatever else that need to be, you know, cleaned up or taken care of or moved forward on. And I think all of the typical excuses of I have to go to work or I have to do X, Y, and Z, all of those have been removed. <laughs> so at least for me, I'm going around really just cleaning up those messes, those metaphorical messes or those real messes, just like just like crazy. Um, and it's been really actually, a a a really nice, uh, kind of experience of, of being able to really do some of those things that I always had time for, if I'm completely honest, but I didn't do because I had excuses to not. Um, so I think that's been the first big thing. The second big thing has been, um, I don't know what your guys' experience have been, but I really enjoy doing online therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I kind of, I know, I know some people might not, but I really enjoy that. And I really enjoy like, I've got, you know, we do 50 minute hours or, or whatever. And, uh, I really enjoy running upstairs and just seeing my kids and giving them a hug or something and, or just checking in with them for like two minutes and then coming back to the next session. That's been so, so cool. Um, for mm. me now, I, I am looking forward to getting back into the office and seeing people face to face because therapeutically, I think it can be very helpful to see people face to face, but. I've enjoyed the time uh, to be able to experience that with my family.
3: I wanted to share something that I think is pertinent to what we're talking about. Um, Somebody else wrote, wrote it, but it says that Satan says, I will cause anxiety, fear, and panic. I will shut down businesses, schools, places of worship, and sports events. I will cause economic turmoil. And Jesus says, I will bring together neighbors, restore the family unit, I will bring dinner back to the kitchen table. I will help people slow down their lives and appreciate what really matters. I will teach my children to rely on me and not the world. I will teach my children to trust me and not their money and material resources. It makes us think about the choice we have to view this as an act of Satan or a blessing from Christ. I am blessed to slow down and have some quality time
0: with God and my family. I think that's absolutely spectacular. Yeah, um, really quite important. You know, one of the one of the big reframes that I had was um, what, yeah, you know, just like you're saying, Chris, what was the advantage uh, that has come from this uh, pandemic for you? And people have had to kind of reframe some of those things and say, well, what is actually helpful about spending those times? So that's exactly what what Taylor is kind of describing there. I think that's so important. Um, you know, I'm curious. Kind of, for you guys, how do you think this kind of coming out of the pandemic is going to kind of work? Um, how do you think people are going to respond coming out of the pandemic?
1: At least for me, I'm not trying to assume because I really don't know. like i I, I think I'm like just sitting yeah. with the unknown in that of like, I, I don't know if it's going to be a slow transition out or, you know, people are going to be like, yeah, I can do all these things and they're rushing out and going to every restaurant and bar and traveling everywhere. I don't, I honestly don't know, but yeah. Yeah. I'm not quite sure. Uh,
0: I guess my, my question is um, how does that, my concern is that people are going to not re-enter the world psychologically uh, as healthy as uh, as maybe we could want. And maybe I, I think I think the kind of key thing for me is when the pandemic or the excuse me when the quarantine is lifted, take it really really slow. You don't have to immediately go back to work. It can take a couple of days. You don't have to go and try and rekindle everything. Sometimes economically people might. Ah, uh, but I think that might. Be really important um, to kind of take it very, very slow because I think the anxiety is going to come back. uh, Is going to come back for a lot of people. I'm curious, you know, is that kind of in your guys' experience when people come back to work or something like that for an from an extended uh, time away? Does that tend to, to happen?
1: I don't. I don't know if there's going to be much anxiety, but I do know that some people who are getting used to working at home and finding new ways to build kind of a healthy lifestyle and healthy habits that some are finding like they're having a better quality of life because they're not commuting. They're not in traffic. They're not, um, you know, they have more flexibility when they get things done essentially for a lot of them. And I think the transition back is going to be really difficult. Um, especially when it's going to be a different sense of loss, I think.
2: I I think, like, we get into, we're creatures of habit, right? So, we, and we get into different sort of frames, like, uh, Frames of mind and even like linguistic frames and cognitive frames when we're like at work or at home. And that's one of the reasons why it's hard to work from home at first, right? For people who aren't used to it, is you have to like, you're like, oh, this doesn't make sense. Like, this is where I do X, Y, and Z. Now I have to do A, B, and C. Um, and so I think like a, a good example for me is like, I used to um, actually, no, I still experience this at work. I was going to say, I used to work for a, an agency that provided in home therapy. Okay. So I'd be driving all around the greater Denver area and seeing clients as far north as Boulder, as far south as like Castle Rock and Parker Highlands Ranch. And and I might have like gaps in my schedule. So I would have, you know, like an hour or two sometimes if I had a cancellation, I would go do something. And then it was, I would notice that it was like very awkward for me, at least at first, I had to really learn how to get like in and out of that frame of clinical work i'd be going into a home doing a music therapy session then i'd be done then i'd be like okay what do i do now and it was almost easier to have back to back to back sessions because i was in that same frame for an extended period of time and i think that might be something to expect when we come out of the quarantine and go back to our quote normal schedules is that all of a sudden now we've been used to one way of being in the world and we have to adjust to another
0: one I think that I, I totally empathize with that. I mean, I would rather do 12 hours of therapy straight than do like four hours spread over, you know, six, mm-hmm. six hours yeah. worth of time, you know. I would rather just do it back to back. Um, and I think the 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 kind of important point that you're saying there is, when you go back into the world, it will be really easy to not, or, you know, it, there'll be a transition time. You know, uh, re-entry will always be a challenge. I think having some grace for that and knowing that that's going to be the case is going to be really important for everybody, uh, especially if, you know, we're on the job, you know, people have to go through the job hunt and start looking for new forms of employment. I think that's going to be, you know, obviously there has to be a certain level of speed with that, but to take it as slow as you can while still trying to, to, to look for that economic uh, development. So well, we should Leave it there, but uh, we will see you guys next time on the Catholic Psyche Podcast.
1: Yes, thank you.